You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. Welcome and thank you for joining me. I created this podcast along with everything I do at yourparentingmentor.com to support and inspire you to be the best parent you can be. I know for a fact and from experience that parenting was never meant to be done alone. From conception to preschool, my mission is to give you the tools, strategies, and knowledge to embrace and elevate your parenting experience. I'm dedicated to supporting, inspiring, and guiding you to nurture your child's immense potential with as much joy and ease as humanly possible. Make sure to take time to check out all of the resources I have gathered for you in the show notes, as well as on my website, yourparentingmentor.com. And be sure to get on my email list so you do not miss a single episode and other products and events I curate specifically for you. And please do not hesitate to reach out if you have any questions, concerns, or feedback. A warm welcome to you and thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. And today I have Jennifer Anderson from Kids Eat in Color. And I am very excited about speaking to her about all things related to food and our children. I know it's a hot topic for many parents. So Jennifer, thank you so much for making the time to be here today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. So as I always like to get started, I I love for my guests to define what the art of parenting means to you. You know what? To me, the art of parenting is getting to understand your child and what they need, which generally takes you outside of the realm of any parenting book you will ever read. (laughs) So, so true. I love that. Yes, because it's it's just tuning into who they are, right? Mm-hmm. So before we get uh, too involved in our conversation, I would love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to do the work that you're doing today. Sure. So I'm a registered dietitian. And when I had my first child, he was cute and chubby, you know, all those, <laughs> all those amazing things. And uh, when I brought him into his nine-month weight checkup, his his pediatrician said, he's not gaining weight. And I was floored and I, I felt guilty. I felt upset. I was concerned, all of those things. And that was really the moment the Kids Eating Colors started. That was the moment that began years of working to keep my child on the growth chart, high-calorie foods, learning feeding practices for kids, all of those things. And eventually I started Kids Eat in Color because I felt alone. I felt like nobody really understood how difficult it can be to feed a child because guess what? My son did not care that I was a dietitian at all. Kids don't care <laughs> what their parents do. And so here I was in a challenging situation and I thought, you know what? There have to be more parents out there who are also having a time feeding their kids, and maybe I can help. And I started Kids in Color as a hobby Instagram. A couple years later, I quit my job at the beginning of 2020 to dedicate my career to helping parents. And now, you know, we have a team of uh, dietitians and occupational therapists, psychologists, 
pediatricians, all those things that really enable us to serve parents in the most evidence-based way, yet 100% grounded way that we possibly can. Wonderful. And I'm sure you are helping so many because I know feeding is such a hot topic where, like you say, you know, this guilt that we have that, you know, why is my child not eating or such, but looking back, like, was that um, all that angst? Was that founded? Like, was it, was it necessary? (laughs) I mean, I I don't know if I'm I'm saying my question right, but I know for me, like, I, I have, you know, much older children. And I remember, you know, thinking about, yes, my child is eating. Like, I don't think I ever worried maybe about eating because I think as a child myself, I had a very, (laughs) an anxious mother who like, you know, would force me to eat. I mean, I have, I have pretty terrible memories of that. Um, So I had kind of promised myself as a parent, like I'm never doing that to my child. Um, And, you know, knock on wood, they're, they're both eight quite well and, and, you know, had moments of picky eating or whatever. But um, so I guess my question is, is that that angst that we have as parents, do we, can we let go of that? Like, is there, is there ways to maybe shift our mindset so that we're not so preoccupied with the amount of food our children are taking in? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yes and no for my okay. And I think, on the one hand, my child absolutely was at nutritional risk. And although he wasn't gaining weight, um, that was a symptom for us and certainly something to pay attention to. Was it something that, um, I mean, and I, I look back at that and I think, yeah, there's a lot of good that came from that. And probably in my case, it absolutely was founded. Most of the time, what I see with parents, and I've seen this with myself for things like sippy cups. How much time did I lose to looking for the right sippy cup on the internet? <laughs> I mean, you know, if if parents need a couple of ideas or recommendations, we have a we have an article about that, but really, you do not need an article. Go to the store, buy a buy a cup with a straw and be done with it. You know, it's not that important. But if you do kind of have that gut feeling of like something might actually be wrong, then that's that's kind of a different situation because sometimes there might actually be something that's atypical about your child and that may need a little more effort. That's actually what I found for my kids was, yes, my son did need some additional support. And so while I did not have to be obsessed with forcing him to eat and pressuring him to him to eat because again that's not an evidence-based practice and like you said you have you know not very pleasant memories of being in that situation on the other end like that's not where we you know sometimes we get so worried that we're forcing our kids that's not going to lead us the way we really want to be going with ourselves or our kids but sometimes we're like oh there is there is something here and my child needs my support and that was the case for me. One of my kids needed, he needed that me to care about his diet. My other son really needed all the evidence-based practices. He was a piggy eater and he would have become a, an extreme picky eater. I showed all the signs of that, but he did have those 
evidence-based practices. And so we were able to keep, you know, moving him forward. Of course, he's not like the most adventurous child out there, but he's confident at eating and that's what we want. So in my opinion, we have to watch our kids. Do they need my support? And if so, how can I support them? And am I really obsessing about something that doesn't matter? Like the, the kind of forks that they have or the spoon or, you know, you name it. Right, right. Well, thank you for that, uh, Jennifer, because I think it's it's reassuring. But I would love if you could share maybe what are like some red flags to be attentive to when it comes to our children's eating habits and, and their diet? Like you mentioned for you, it was, you know, your child wasn't gaining uh the weight that the pediatrician would want to see, but what are maybe some other uh, things to watch out for that parents can be attentive to? Yeah, great question. So when I think of kind of those nutrition related things, if your child develops anemia or the weight issue or um, some sort of nutrition deficiency, or if the, you know, you're working with your pediatrician, you're thinking, yeah, you know, they're having questions and something doesn't seem right that's one area where you really are kind of tweaking what they're eating. On the other side, when we think about picky eating, a lot of kids go through picky phases. You know, you mentioned your kids have these little picky spots. And, and I always say, you know, you're going to come to your child with a banana. And there's going to be this day where they say, I will not eat that banana, but in different words, because you peeled it wrong. Like, you name it. This is a tip. This is typical, right? kids, they want to have their opinions and they want to learn how to do things themselves and they're developing expectations, all those things. But if you're finding your child is not learning to like a new food after, say, 30 tries, or there are certain textures that they never eat, or they're never bringing a food to their mouth, maybe they, let's say they ate 100 foods and now they're down to 20 foods. You know, it's, it's common for kids to drop a few foods off their list. But if they never bring them back, and on top of it, that list is going down, 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 down. These are all red flags. And I always like to remind parents too, if you feel that feeding your child is more stressful for you than every other person you know, that's a red flag for me. That's telling me that it's probably not just you. There's probably a challenge there. Hmm. And when you say challenges, like what what does that... What is, could you, could you define that? Like, I'm, I don't know as I'm understanding other than, you know, this idea of maybe having a sensitivity uh, to certain textures or, um, or being a picky eater. But for me, for me, like picky is, is really just, you know, part of, part of childhood. Like I, I, you know, I remember being a very terrible picky eater. I have made up for it many times. <laughs> but, uh, but like, when you when you say challenges, like, can, can you like explain that a little bit more? Sure. So picky eating has many different causes. And on one level, you know, there's different degrees of picky eating. Like you said, all, all kids are a little bit picky. And that's totally typical. On the other hand, there's challenges where, you know, if 
if something isn't done, your child may not be able to participate in kind of standard social experiences that they would want to participate in. Maybe they go to a birthday party and there's nothing they can eat. Maybe they go to a birthday party and they're afraid to get icing on their hands so they don't participate in cake. Maybe, and you know, kids don't have to love cake, but what we're looking for is can they actually participate in the things that they want to participate in? We also want to make sure that they can get enough nutrition to meet their nutritional needs and meet their growth needs and their development needs, right? So if a child is absolutely unable to eat anything except for crackers and milk and, um, you know, like candies and stuff, that's going to be tricky for them to meet all of their nutritional needs if those are the only three categories that they're eating. You think of kind of like what might be going on on the inside of a child that leads them to be very, you know, very selective about foods. And there's, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of things. Sometimes it's just, how are things organized at home? You know, does the child know what the expectations are? Are they being served a variety of foods? Things like that. We like to think of that as basic picky eating, which is, you know, it's easy for parents to get into this situation and there are things that we've all done, but sometimes they've just kind of added up to the point that the child hasn't really expanded their diet. But then there's, there's things like their sensory system. Maybe they don't have a good sense of if they're hungry or full. Maybe they can't deal with different textures. Maybe they can't deal with different sounds or maybe their body isn't organized enough. Their sensory system is not organized enough for them to be able to process all the sensations they're getting from their food. So there's genetic component, there's, uh, you know, psychological components of, you know, am I afraid to eat? Do I have un, un atypical levels of anxiety? Um, even things like, you know, just like traits, personality traits. Am I a very inflexible person? I may not be able to handle the fact that this blueberry is sour and the other one was sweet. I may just not be able to handle that. And so I cannot eat blueberries. Yeah, that's fascinating. And and I would say and I would probably say like on top of that if there's uh food allergies or food intolerance that must add to that whole realm of um so what would you say to maybe a parent who is listening who you know has a young child that is maybe wondering like what is the best way to offer a variety of food and make sure that you know there's always good nutrition uh for for their children and i guess i say this because or i ask this because i feel that oftentimes parents tend to err towards what they know their child will actually eat <laughs> you know like like you say the the crackers and the candy and i and i tend to go like no you're not a short order cook you prepare you know a meal for the family and the child will eat what what they will eat and and all is well but it sounds like what you know what you're saying it can be a little bit more complicated for some families and some children right Right. And I think you're totally right on. And this is what we teach families in our Better Bites Picky Eating program, right? Like, no, you're not a short order cook. You do not have to be a short order cook. That is too much on you. And it's not going to help your child. At the same time, if you have a picky eater, your child may not be able to just sit down and eat whatever. 
you may have to think about what is my child comfortable with? You know, there are children who will currently only eat 10 foods. That's not very many foods. And it can be extremely stressful for the child, the parent, for everybody trying to make sure they meet their nutritional needs, right? But if you make a meal and you always provide at least one food that you know your child is comfortable with, then you can begin to relax and they can begin to relax as well. Maybe that food is bread. Maybe you offer bread at every dinner and that's always there. That means your child is going to be able to be comfortable because they know they're going to come to the meal, that bread is going to be there. And even if everything else on the table freaks them out for whatever reason, they know that that food that they're comfortable with is going to be there. And just having that food available opens up doors and enables a child to branch out because they can finally relax. Because they have that comfort that there's at least one thing that they can eat. Because if you think about, you know, imagine a food that you really, really dislike. And and now imagine, you know, two other foods and you come to this meal and there's three foods on the table and they're all foods that you dislike. Like, how do you feel in that moment? I feel stressed out, you know, and I have, you know, there's a couple of foods that I'm still learning to like. And if they were all the meal, like, I'm going to have a hard time, even as a grown up. Yeah. I just thought liver, liver and beets would be for me. (laughs) (laughs) You know, mushrooms and liver with a side of, uh, you know, I don't know, some sort of leafy green that I haven't learned to like. Yeah. But then, so, so this, this child that, you know, is, is only comfortable for bread, for example, are you going to be okay with them maybe only eating bread at that meal? Yeah, I think that's, I think this is key. And often we get, we get really worried and we think, wait a second, we're only eating bread. That's not okay. We're, we're only going to eat bread and, and that's not enough. So I'm only going to let them eat one piece of bread and then, right. And we start to get worked up. Your child is going to sense that. And then you're going to say, you can only have one piece of bread. Well, what's your child going to think then? Oh my gosh, I can only have one piece of bread. <laughs> and then their anxiety goes up. And when anxiety goes up, the throat tightens, the saliva dries up, the, you know, they're, they feel like they have a lump in their throat. They're on fight or flight, which means they're not, you know, resting and digesting, right? All the things that they need to learn to eat, that digestion, that saliva, like all these things are impaired because now they're stressed out. But when they come to the table and they know that there's that food that they're comfortable with and they know they're allowed to eat as much as they want, That is the foundation of being able to branch out. Once a child knows that they're not going to be pressured and and they can truly just relax at the table, nobody's going to be asking them how much they're eating. Nobody's going to be monitoring how many bites of bread, right? Then they can branch out. I'm not saying stop there, right? Because that may not be enough. If you have an extreme picky eater, you're going to need more tools. And just providing that safe food is not going to be enough. But that truly is the starting point. Yeah. And, and that makes total sense. Like, you you know, when you say the stress is going to stop them, just, you know, like I, I, I thought of childbirth, right? When we, when we fear, we are where we, we close up and we don't, we're not able to, to, birth as easily as we could because we're 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 all tense and so it sounds like it's it's kind of the same thing um but then but then you said you you talked about like an extreme 
picky eater. So how would you define an extreme picky eater? You, you mentioned something about, you know, a child only, for example, only liking 10 foods. Would that be Absolutely. that extreme? Okay. Yeah. When we think about like really problematic, extreme picky eating, I'm generally thinking, you know, what are the stress levels of the parents if they're through the roof? And on top of it, the child is eating maybe less than 20 foods. That's an extreme situation. But, you know, you might even have a child who's eating maybe less than 30 foods or mm-hmm. or something like that. And you just find like things aren't headed in a right direction. That's when you really have to start engaging more of kind of what I call advanced methods where yes, you're, you're doing a lot of core stuff. You're making sure that they're not calling the shots at the meal. You're picking the meal and you're making the meal and you're only making one, but then you're also going to need additional tools beyond that. And when you say additional tools, what, um, like what, what type are you referring to? You know, some people do like feeding therapy with somebody one-on-one. We offer our Better Bites Picky Eating course, which offers those as well. Um, but these are the sort of tools where you are working with your child and you're helping them become comfortable with different foods that they currently won't eat. And you're helping them kind of, you're taking that core of 10 foods that they eat and you you say, okay, how can I tweak these and help them become comfortable with similar foods, but that aren't quite the same. And you kind of get into more of like technique based one-on-one work with your child. Okay. So, and, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, but one of my techniques, like when I work with, with parents that are, you know, having kind of children who, who are saying no to food is to really involve them in food shopping, in food preparation, in in just everything that involves, you know, setting up the table, meal prep and all of that. What what do you say to that? Is that is that helpful as well? Yeah, I love that. You know, it the thing about helping with shopping is kids don't have to they don't have to eat it. You know, you're in the store, they're not expected to eat that carrot. But they saw that carrot and maybe they put that carrot in the grocery cart and they are, um, you know, when kids feel ownership, when they're involved, they are much more likely to try a new food. It doesn't mean it's going to work for every child. And, and you know, sometimes it's just too much for the parent to kind of take that on. But that's certainly just a wonderful technique. Yeah, yeah. Because for me, I mean, I'm, I'm a very, I'm a big advocate about really involving children in just in our day to day life, right? So, food, thinking about food and, and going and buying food. Or, you know, for me, I receive a, a box from, from my local farmers. I go through it. Let's, you know, figure out what we're going to cook with this or, or make, look up recipes and so forth. And to me, I feel that that is going to kind of get them connected to where the food is coming from and, and you know, possibly liking it, I hope. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, when you look at kind of children who grow their own food, they're so much more willing to, you know, eat something that they grew and they watched, you know, become something that they could eat. And your your community of parents, is it mostly uh, here in the United States or is it a global? It is global. Um, obviously, the there is a majority in the United States, but truly all over the world. And do you do you see like a difference in how maybe different cultures work with food and their children? Yeah, you know, when I initially started Kids Eating Color, 
I thought that it would just be a United States thing. I came in kind of thinking, oh, well, picky eating is just a U.S. thing. We're too, um, you know, we have, quote, kid food, which I like to think of as food that kids always eat on the first bite. Well, like the, the kids' menus, right? right? And all the restaurants. It's like in some countries that that just does not exist. <laughs> and at the same time, what I learned is, wow, you know, kids from all over the world have parents struggle with this. I think yes. in the United States, we may have more kind of p- picky eating than others. But I also think of other places where I've lived where there's not a whole lot of menu variation. And so here, kids are expected to eat this wide variety of foods. And in other places, that variety doesn't necessarily exist. So that has always been an interesting thing to me. And then there's also kind of this idea, um, you know, I one time had somebody tell me, well, in France, there's no such thing as a picky eater. And this person was not from France. Um, <laughs> but this so, is- so I will say I am from France. There are picky eaters. Right. Okay, right. I grew up in France. I was a picky eater in France. <laughs> and this, is, this is the this is the idea that we have is like, there's no picky eaters in other places. That's just not true. There are picky eaters because there are these challenges that kids have on the inside that has just made it more tricky. Yeah. No, and, and, and it's it's interesting because I was asking that just because, you know, I'm I'm I travel quite a bit and, and I'm always observing like what children have access to. And I was noticing the last time I was in France how we have these open air markets um, all over for for example in Paris we have them all over the in different neighborhoods and right below my father's apartment building there is one that is there three times a week and it is right at the children's level right they're 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 walking the stands are there it's all fresh vegetables and and you know chickens and eggs and rabbits and and whatever and so they see it they smell it they 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 can even touch it even some of the shopkeepers you know will have them taste something and so it seems like there's just a much uh, kind of easier accessibility to to the actual food and the the people who are producing the food that I feel in this country in the U.S. we have aseptized so much of it and everything is you know in packaging or in boxes or in plastic and and all this so we don't have that that sensorial access to it and I was just wondering if that that would make a difference. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I think. The, and and just the freshness aspect, um, you know, there have been years where we've done community supported agriculture, you know, where we get a box of food and the, the food that you get, the fresh food from the farm and from the farmer uh, that comes is just not the same as the food that's come from all over the world in the grocery store. And, you know, that's not something that is that we are uh, that's working for us right now. And so we are buying our food at the grocery store. But. I think it's absolutely true, you know, that those baby carrots that have, that have, you know, come from a very long way away, and then they were processed, and then, you know, all these things, they taste so much different than an in-season carrot that was recently dug up. So absolutely, the, the sensory aspect of it, even how it looks, you know, farmers markets are just so beautiful. And you're right, the kids taste it, they smell it. There's so many things there. And it it does make a difference. 
Yeah. But at the same time, um, I know that there are food deserts in this country where people don't necessarily have access to fresh produce as we would as we would like. So how do families in those situations are, you know, able to provide good quality food? Mm-hmm. I think it's tricky. And in the United States, the um, food system is, it's not equitable. It's not fair. I think every person should be able to have access to food and they should be able to have access to a balanced diet, truly. So the fact that we have, you know, when I was doing my my master's degree in public health in Baltimore, I, I did research in the, the city um, food environment and there was you know, um, two, two grocery stores for the entire areas, like East Baltimore and West Baltimore, like the entire under-resourced areas, each had one grocery store in a whole city. I mean, these two areas of the city. And, and that was, that was it, right? The rest of the places where people were supposed to buy food were corner stores, canned food, that was it. No, no frozen food, no nothing. It was, hey, can you see through the bulletproof glass to ask for that can? And no, there's probably not going to be a lot of canned vegetables there as well. So what is kind of happening in the United States really kind of stems from racism. We had a practice called redlining, which is where people organized cities and kind of the housing market based on um, you know, different uh, on along racial lines, and oh, hey, this is the red line area. We're we're not going to build grocery stores there. We're not going to zone for that. And so we're still seeing the effects of that years later. And now we're trying to say, okay, how do we make sure every community has food and has a a variety of foods? And it's it's a very tricky situation. And this is rural too, rural areas as well. The, the geography is kind of trickier in those areas. Um, but sometimes people don't have access there either. Right, right. And it's almost like the, the only way is to grow your own food, which, you know, you need land for that and space and time. And yeah, it's amazing that, you know, when you describe that, I keep on saying like, but wait, we're in the 21st century. How is this still possible? But, but it's true. And, and, you know, it's probably not only in the United States, it's, it's, there's a lot of places like that. Um, so, so to just get back on, you, you mentioned uh, earlier, and we were, we were kind of talking offline about uh, a new kind of the American Association of Pediatrics came out with a new uh, weight um, program or, or standard. Did, would you mind talking a little bit about that? Because I know sure, you, they, were, you were saying that was kind yeah, of a hot topic. Yeah, hot topic. Yeah, um, yeah. The, they came out with their new clinical practice guideline, which is recommendations for children who, are at our, who have a higher weight. And it you know, kind of ties into what we were just talking about. One of the things that I like about this guideline is they go into depth on you know, what causes uh, a person to be at a higher weight? And you know, for so long, we've had this idea that weight is a personal choice, that if you're at a high weight, 
it's because of of uh, some sort of personal choice that you made and it's bad right it's like categorically if you're in a bigger body it is bad and it's your fault and you're morally inferior right that is the reality of uh, at least in the united states of how how people are being treated and it's in the medical system and everywhere and one of the things about this guideline is it really lays out what affects a person's weight what affects a person's weight and it is an you know personal choices are just this very small list and there's a huge list of things including like does your community have access to food if so what kind of food is your community safe to walk around in or to be active in? You know, there's what foods are available in the schools? What foods are, what foods outside of school lunch are available? There's so many things. Your genetics, uh, you know, the pregnancy environment is so, so many things. And I think that's so great. Um, but parents have been coming to us concerned, confused, asking so many questions because the guidelines are very aggressive in their treatment recommendations. And these recommendations might include weight loss diets or medication or even surgery for young for young kids. And on the one hand, you know, Kids in Color is a weight neutral organization. We um, we provide resources to families that enable them to work on improving the health of their child and their family without focusing on weight. We don't think we have to focus on weight. We don't think we have to focus on weight loss in order to improve our health and our sense of well-being. And so that's really our, that has always been our position. And in light of this, you know, we <laughs> went really deep into looking into this. And for us, it was, um, you know, we didn't feel that this guideline changed anything about our recommendations, except that now parents are going to be going into more medical appointments. And if their child is at a higher weight, um, a pediatrician may step in and have maybe willing to kind of focus on weight more than they would have before this guideline. And so we kind of developed a very strong statement about what's our position what do we like about this guideline what do we not support about this guideline what would we recommend instead all those things as well as saying look we can't stop with statements about something like this we have to provide tools to parents so now we have a um a set of articles for parents um my favorite of which is our uh parent guide to positive health-focused medical visits with their kids. So if parents are worried about that and they're afraid they're going to walk into um, walk into their visit, the well checkup or something with their child and they're concerned that weight might come up. And, you know, we generally recommend that parents not discuss weight with young kids. Um, now they have a list of alternate questions that they can engage um, with the provider with so that they can kind of say, okay, you know, I, I actually don't want to discuss those measurements right now, but what I'd really like to know is, you know, and then we provide a whole list of questions for families. So we really kind of said, you know, the medical setting for kids may, may change some as a result of this clinical practice guideline. We hope on the positive side that results in less bias and less stigma towards kids with higher weights. On the other side, 
or concern that um, providers may focus on weight. And because of that, we really want to empower parents to go into appointments and to say, hey, I don't want to focus on weight, but I do want to focus on my child's health. How can you help me do that? And here's some questions that I have for you. Which is which is very helpful because I, I know I know for me, I mean I'm I'm not a child anymore, but just recently I went in for annual exam and I do not in the least bit feel overweight. And that's the first thing the doctor told me. I was like, What? What do you you know? And it was like it was it just didn't make sense. And it and it and it it did bother me and offend me because I feel extremely healthy. Um, I know I eat well, I exercise and so forth. And it was like, you know, so, so have they gotten a guideline too as to, you know, a 61 year old woman needs to be this certain weight. It it was, it was very bizarre um, to hear that. And I can imagine that for, for families, that must be even an, an added stress and, and, yeah, I'm glad that you say that we don't talk about weight with children because it can be so, you know, detrimental to to later on and into their to their mental health uh, altogether. Um, so yeah, and and at the same time, you know, I understand that we are, you know, trying to curve the obesity uh, that we have in this country and all this, but I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier is, you know, is good, nutritious, fresh food available for everyone? Yeah. And, and the one thing that I really do like about this guideline is, you know, they go into depth, like how our environment shapes us from adverse childhood experiences, including racism or family turmoil or violence, or, you know, you name it. There's so many things that, that cause our weight. And, um, you know, like you mentioned, there's some magical number. You walk into the doctor's office and they say, hey, you're overweight. Well, they're basing that on one number. And that number is usually the body mass index. And as we explain in our medical guide, they're going to use this. They're going to use this number. This number has some really serious shortcomings. And it's not going to accurately represent the health of most people, really. In fact, it's going to tell, you know, someone like you where you're saying, look, my lifestyle is doing well. I feel great. Um, you know, maybe my, my lab work is good, all these things. So what, what is the purpose of me having that number? You know, what's really happening? So we want to help parents kind of say, we understand having that diagnosis, because right now, you know, based on BMI cutoffs, kids will be diagnosed with uh, overweight or obesity. And the one benefit of this is that it opens up insurance coverage for additional tests and screenings. And that's good because, um, you know, we do want to know about our child's health. And if an additional screening opened up the ability to understand something about their blood work or something like that, then that was a good thing. But let's not fixate on it. And, you know, in, that's not the, the um, measurement I would have chosen, certainly, given its downsides, but it's kind of the reality that we live in. So let's make the best of it and then not discuss it in front of our kids. Right, right. 
Beautiful. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, because I'm sure that is very helpful and comforting to to many families and and our listeners. Um, so, so Jennifer, as as we wrap up, I um, would love to ask a more personal question, if I may. Sure. So, you mentioned you have two sons. Is that correct? Yep. yep. What uh, What age is your eldest? Uh, nine. Nine. So if you were to go back maybe 10 years ago when you were expecting your first child, what wise words would you tell yourself knowing all that you know today? Great question. You know, I keep coming back to the idea this past week about confidence. You know, we develop confidence in our children by letting them figure things out for themselves, by making mistakes, by picking themselves up, by trying again. Why do we stop letting ourselves do the same things, especially as parents now or even pre-parents, right? We think, oh my gosh, the right answer is out there. I have to learn the right answer and I have to do the right thing. And then the right thing is going to happen for my child and nothing bad is going to happen. That's our that's our mentality as kind of modern parents in this information, evidence-based age where we know all the right answers, quote. Um, The reality is that's not how we develop confidence as parents. And I wish I had known, I wish somebody would have told me, not that I would have listened, you know, because I'm an independent (laughs) person, but I wish I kind of would have understood that there is going to come a time when with your child, something is going to come up and you're not going to have the answer and your friend isn't going to have the answer and your pediatrician's not going to have the answer and the person on the internet, they're not going to have the answer. And you're going to have to have the confidence to keep looking, to keep trying, to keep reading, to keep talking to people, to keep looking until you find what your child needs. And The only way that you are going to have the confidence to keep going and to keep searching, to put it all together, is if you start figuring things out for yourself early. And if you're only doing the best practice from the internet and everything else, I mean, I'm not saying don't don't learn stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely learn stuff, right? But it's also okay to figure some things out for yourself. And that is where your confidence is going to come from. Yeah, thank you for that. Because what what I hear also in in what you're saying is to also like there's a certain knowing I think that we have as parents, a certain intuition that sometimes we we give it up for you know for the internet for for Doctor Google or whatever, and and we don't like tune in and go hmm. I wonder what my child really needs or what do I really need and, and really kind of hone in and listen to, to our inner wisdom. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, Jennifer, any, any parting words that you would like to leave our listeners with today? My parting words are always this, you're doing a great job and your best is best for your child and your family. Thank you. That's beautiful. Thank you. Well, this was lovely. Jennifer, thank you so much for making the time to be on The Art of Parenting today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 
I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Art of Parenting podcast. And if you did, please share it with your loved ones and make sure to leave a review so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.